Welcome to the Research Briefs Podcast. I'm your host, Ruth Streveler, Professor of Engineering Education in the College of Engineering at Purdue University. In Research Briefs, we'll speak with engineering education researchers about what their lives are like, what we're finding out, and how their research is being used. My guest today is Dr. Emily Dringenberg, an assistant professor in engineering education at The Ohio State University. Emily leads a vibrant research group composed of undergraduate, graduate students, and a postdoc. And her research group is called BERG, Beliefs and Engineering Research Group. And she's here today to talk about that research, how deeply held beliefs that are usually implicit can perpetuate inequity in STEM. Some of the uh, listeners might recognize you because you have interviewed me. Yes, and great to be back. Yes, yes. And uh, Emily and I have a little inside joke that I've been asking her to do a podcast forever, and she has finally agreed. So, yay! <laughs> Very exciting. Thank you for having me. Uh, so, Emily, could you start by letting the listeners know when you say deeply held beliefs as your uh, focus of inquiry, how do you define beliefs? This is kind of a doozy of a question to start with, because I'll tell you pretty regularly in Berg, we'll be having a discussion about some idea or some project we're working on, and someone will say, but hold on, like, what is a belief? So I can answer this, I can say lots of things, but I will admit it's kind of a moving target sometimes, and Mm -hmm. I think it can be a lot of things. That's what we found in our work of like, you could nail it, you know, not you could nail it down. You could define it in different ways, um, but really, you know, being intentional about that. But I can tell you some of my ideas right now. Really, when I think of beliefs, I think of something that is like a foundational component of both individuals. Like we hold beliefs and those are some of like our most basic aspects of how we experience the world, of how we make sense of things, of, you know, all the information we take in. But I also think they're a foundational component of like social systems. So things like culture or social norms, I think you can also think about beliefs as one of the sort of building blocks for those things. So um, that's really broad. But in general, I think beliefs, my understanding, my thought about it is that they're very broad. So they often can overlap or include other things that researchers study, like your attitude, your values, your perceptions, your, you know, ideologies, your expectations. So I tend to think of them as like a very broad term that exists in different places. But at the end of the day, and I don't think I've ever said this to you, but I was thinking more about this. I think for me, a belief is something that you have to construct because you're trying to understand something that you can't just like look up, right? Like things like, how do people learn who they are? How do people become engineers? Like there's no answer. So sometimes if I say beliefs, people think I mean like religious beliefs and it's not, that's not what we study, but it is this idea of there's some degree of unknown and complexity, right? Like social phenomenon, humans, and that that's where these beliefs come in because they're sort of like the theories or the ideas that can explain things. Um, And then also I think 
this idea of where they come from, that our beliefs come very, we form them very slowly, very gradually. We don't even really know. We're not explicitly saying, I believe that this is how the world works just by existing and having our lived experiences and looking around us and, you know, being socialized. It's these like real deep assumptions about how things work in terms of very complex things that are not just, you know, like the water cycle, this is how it works. They're, they're things that are too complex. So we sort of form these beliefs or assumptions so that we can explain things. That's what I would say. So, I, I know you have told me in our other conversations, again, which you alluded to here, of that your beliefs about beliefs have changed. Mm. Yes. <laughs> um, do you want to tell people a bit about how you came to study this and uh, a little bit about your trajectory? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think I ended up. So one thing that many people may be familiar with, maybe you've been in a professional development or a workshop or something, and people show this image of like an iceberg and the iceberg can represent all kinds of things. Um, but there's this idea of like, there's these things above the surface and there's all these things below the surface. And um, I think that idea of under the surface really intrigues me. That's why like in your, when you say, you know, deeply held or implicit, these things that are going on that are happening and that matter and are important, but they're sort of like at this deeper level. And, you know, again, and actually in our logo for bird, we have a triangle with like a squiggle through it. And we have, we meant for that to look sort of like that iceberg mm -hmm. of like these deeper things that are going on. And usually the things that I would first think to research are the things up above, especially right with like background in engineering. It's like the things I can measure, the things I can quantify, but I was just really curious about all these other things. And, you know, just like in nature, the most of the iceberg is underneath the surface. So that I think intrigued me generally as an idea. Um, I think also kind of, like I said, to what is in a, what is a belief, this idea that it's sort of foundational that also made me think, well, I could, you know, do my research in that area because if it's foundational and it's complex, there's so many questions we could ask, right? And so many ways we could come at it um, that I thought that might be a good, right, as you're trying to form your idea, good, um, rich space for lots of ideas and things to emerge over time. And then, um, well, so I employ almost exclusively qualitative methods so while many people study beliefs using survey items, I think, again, sort of this match between the type of style of research I like to do and the types of questions I was asking. And then really the most practical answer to why I studied beliefs is I had just started a tenure track job. I did not start in a tenure track job right after I finished my PhD. I taught for a while. And when I started, you know, I'm asking everyone advice. What am I supposed to be doing? And am I supposed to be figuring out? I'm supposed to have a research group with a cool name, like an acronym. And I got the advice. What you need to do is like plant your flag where the words. And I wish I could give a shout out to exactly who told me that, but I don't, I'm not confident who it was um, within our community. But this idea of like pick a thing and name it and plant your flag and put that name in your research group and publish papers with that in the title and like make that your thing. And I was 
nervous to do that because I was like, that feels like a big commitment. Yeah, it is and a big so, commitment. Yes. Yeah. When I was thinking about beliefs, I was like, well, that's super broad. So maybe if I say beliefs and plant my flag, I will still have some time to, you know, figure that out and work with students who can help me figure that out. So I'm not sure you're supposed to admit things like that, but just very practically, I was like, okay, they're telling me this is what I should do. So let me pick beliefs. But it has it has worked out well, I think. Well, it is, as you say, it's really intriguing. It's really important. It's really mysterious. Mm-hmm. And I, you are very much the kind of person I love to have as a guest on Research Briefs because I like delving into people who've had the courage to mm-hmm. research things that are tough to research. So um, do you feel like you have gone after difficult things before or what would you say in relationship to um, planning your flag on something that's so amorphous? Mm. You know, I don't think I would say like, yes, I was very courageous and I knew it was going to be hard and I did it anyway because I actually didn't know that it would be as hard as it has been. I just thought, oh, and then I'll learn what beliefs are, and then we'll operationalize it, and we'll design our study, and we'll get funding, and it's only been in the past, this is my fifth year in this, like, specific research agenda, where I am starting to appreciate how hard it is, and that's why that question still comes up in our discussions. Wait, what is it? We have to be sure we're clear. What is it? How are we measuring it? Are, you know, can we substantiate our claims? Is that, does that make sense methodologically? So I wouldn't say that I was courageous um, necessarily. No, no. I don't think I knew what I was getting into, but you can say that about everything in life. (laughs) That's true. A lot of times if, wow, if I knew this was it, maybe I wouldn't have done it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But I'm I'm glad that you still are happy with that choice. Um, Now, uh, you recently came to uh, do a seminar at Purdue, and I got you to hear you speak about this, about... Um, a belief that particularly we in engineering can really relate to, and that is about smartness. So um, to give, well, because it's really interesting in its own right, and also to give people an idea of how researching beliefs can work, um, can you tell us more about your work on smartness? Mm -hmm. What you found out? Yes. Yeah, beliefs, you know, we in our group, we study beliefs about, you know, sort of several different things. Um, But with really thread is like beliefs, these implicit beliefs, also how these beliefs relate to inequity. But this line of research around beliefs related to smartness, who is considered smart, who gets counted as smart enough to be engineer, I will say is maybe one of my favorites. It just continues to intrigue me no matter, you know, how long we spend thinking about it, talking about it, studying it. So um, I, I really enjoy, thank you for giving me a chance to talk about it because I, I really like um, talking about it. And it, and like I said, it continues to just confuse me. It's very complex. Um, but what I will say is, well, so do you want me to say like the findings we have or how I think of smartness? 
Well, you know, the first thing that I think is really interesting is where you got the idea for smartness as a belief. And then did you, did you see it in the literature or did it emerge from other research that you did? Hmm. I, so the original idea of like, I want to study smart, like whatever that is, honestly, to me, that is from my lived experience and the things I've heard from people who have talked to me about how important it is, how everyone thinks you must be smart if you're an engineer, like these things that are just very salient, like family dynamics, right? Either any way it goes, I really think I'm smart and I know I am because I'm an engineer or I'm constantly worried I'm not smart enough to be like all the ways. I think that was really the impetus for me. And I I think that's true for a lot of researchers, like Mm -hmm. something that's really close to home and that, you know, is salient. And then you hear a lot of other people say like, yeah, 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 me too. Me too. Oh, right. We interview first year students. So many people in our community, right. Want to understand first year engineering students. Well, I'm here because I was good at math and science, right. I was smart Mm -hmm. kid. I was AP. And just that story in general, I think was before I ever read any literature was really I just was curious about that. And that was honestly, that's been, that's like a thread from way before I even started my PhD in engineering education Um, and teaching. I taught at a high school and seeing the dynamics, especially around race and achievement and what was going on and what happened when I started an engineering program. It just seemed like it was always there for me, this idea Mm -hmm. of like, something is going on, something very powerful about who's smart, who's not, what we think is smart. And, and then I, I started reading literature and this was actually before me saying my flag is beliefs Mm -hmm. started reading literature just about like, what is intelligence? How is it defined? And I think that then got me rolling on, Oh wait, maybe it's kind of made up. Oh wait, Right. This is what research tells us about how it's not really the way we think it is. It's not really just something that's RIQ. Right. There's all this evidence. And I started reading that. And then most recently, I would say, well, so from that literature, I got very curious about this idea that different people think different things are smart like this idea that it's culturally constructed and what you might recognize as smart is not what I necessarily recognize. And that was one of the first, so that's some of the findings that we have coming out of Bird now is like, well, okay, so if it's not a, if it's a thing that we just come up with and different people come up with different ideas, like what, and different people believe different things are smart. Like let's figure out what engineering students believe is smart. And that's some of the, the findings that we have. And now I sort of use some different ideas to think about it, but I would say that's sort of where it started. My own experience, then starting to get into academic literature, just like out of curiosity, and then really coming to this question of, okay, so what is it? What do students believe? What are the shared beliefs that engineering students have about smartness? So what have you found about the beliefs yes. that engineering students have about smartness. Yes. So I do qualitative research. So, right, you're always assessing if this is transferable. So I can't say this is what students believe. None of my research allows me to say that. But 
from the sample that I had in one of the studies that we've done, which was about 20 engineering students, and this is at a large research intensive PWI, um, predominantly white, white institution, mm -hmm. right? Um, we have found that engineering students actually share a very clear set of beliefs. There's variation, of course, right? Different people, but there's this very clear thread. And what we have found in our research is that some, they engineering undergraduate engineering students, at least from our context, shared a belief that smartness is working efficiently. And even more specifically, that it's working more efficiently than other people. Interesting. So say more about the efficientness. And do they use that word, actually? They do use that word. Yes, yes. We sort of found the same, we kind of arrived at the same conclusion that like, this is the thing. This is the, the definition that is constructed by students or shared by students in two ways. One, they like say it explicitly. They want to be efficient. They try to be efficient. You have to be efficient. You know, that's what they actually use those words and say those things directly that what it means to be smart is to be able to work efficiently. But they also say it sort of indirectly. This is the thing about beliefs, right? When you really analyze, you know, the rich data set, you get these other threads that come out, which is not just I said this thing, right? Like my explicit belief. But what they were saying explicitly was is has been backed up with that they talk about the way you judge if someone's smart, someone else or yourself is you start by comparing outcomes. So like, what did you get on the test compared to the average? What did I get on the test compared to the person I study with? Like, OK, where am I? Am I above or below? Where do I stand? But then they don't just take that like, oh, if you get an A, you're the smartest and whoever got a, an F is not is the least smart. Then they bring in this idea of, but how hard did you have to try to get that output? Right. And so that comes in. They talk about using both of those things. So, yeah, I got an A and, and my study partner got an A, too. But I only studied five hours and I heard she studied 15 or, you know, so therefore I am smarter. So that's how that efficiency comes through again, is that they use both of these sort of ideas like what did you achieve, but also how hard did you try with the idea that, right, the more effort you had to put in, the less efficient you were and therefore the less, the less smart. So I want to pose a couple of things. One, probably anybody who has ever told somebody they were an engineering student or now an engineering professor or engineering mm -hmm. graduate student, I would bet that 99 out of 100 times people will go, you must be smart. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that people might say is engineering is hard. Mm -hmm. So if it's hard and in order to and you're smart, shouldn't be engineering be easy for you if you're smart? So you're you're shaking your head yes. So <laughs> say a bit about that, what seems like a contradiction. Yes, we have tried to write about this and we just stumble over ourselves. Um, so hopefully I don't stumble too much trying to explain it, but you're exactly right. And this has changed 
what I think about beliefs. I don't really think that beliefs are just, oh, I believe that whoever is most efficient is smart, like period. That's a belief. That's something I have. And it just stays. I actually think of beliefs more as sort of maybe these like discrete chunks. Some might be very specific, some might be very broad, but a whole bunch of them exist and are available to us in our culture and that we pull on ones that we may hold or express or endorse ones consciously or subconsciously that don't make sense. Like you said, when you put them on paper, it seems like you can't believe both those things, but we see that over and over. And I think that's really intriguing with this idea of like, beliefs are not just, I believe this, so I do this, but rather it's almost like it's this resource that we can draw on to, and, and because it's so complex, right, we can have things that are maybe even contradictory because that is exactly what we saw. Hold on. You think smart is not having to try right? Because that makes you more efficient. And you think you're, and, and there's this idea that engineers are smarter than everyone. And the engineers who usually end up at the type of university that I work at are ones who have been in AP, who have been in honors, who have been the valedictorian, like they have gotten all the messages that you are at the top, you're the smartest. But then you get here and you have to work really hard. So doesn't that mean you're not smart? But you would think that they would have to change their belief oh, actually, now that I'm in college, I don't think that, or now that I'm in engineering school, I don't think that being smart is not having to try because I have to try and I'm still smart. But it doesn't really flip like that, I think. They hold the other things and what we have seen in our data, multiple projects trying to look explicitly at smartness is they just sort of add this other belief in, which is, well, engineering is way harder than every other major. Even though they have not experienced another major, they often don't have much social circle outside of their major. That's just sort of made up, but it works because it allows, as a set, these beliefs can exist together. Mm-hmm. 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 So I, I think you would say that this idea that, okay, I have a belief and therefore logically I have this other belief that's compatible that that that's really not what you're seeing. Right. Yes. Yes. And I think of when I was a student and was in your class at Purdue, I remember about the conceptual change. I always see a connection here to your work. And my favorite um, example from conceptual change is that if a child experiences the, the earth, they think it's flat, then they go to school and someone says, no, it's round. And so in their mind, now it's like a pizza. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't just flip. And so I always, that same idea of, well, we find a way to make those fit. And that has come up for me back from when we were talking about conceptual change and, you know, some of your research, something very similar here of, you don't just get confronted and then you just change your belief. It's real complex. There's different ones, there's different settings, but you just sort of find a way to make them make sense. Emily, when you were giving your seminar here recently, there was a particular point that really fascinated me. And that was talking about smartness as a cultural practice Mm -hmm. instead of an attribute that a person has. Um, Can you share a bit of that with the listeners? 
Yes. So as I was doing some of this research, like, okay, I want to know what engineering students believe smartness is, because I get this idea that we kind of construct the definition. You know, I was always reading more literature, trying to read from different fields, more stuff to just shape my thinking and understand my data as well. And I came across um, the work of Beth Hatt, and she, the main theory that she offers that we leverage a lot in our research on smartness is smartness as a cultural practice. And so she did like very extensive ethnographic, like almost 900 hours of ethnographic research, actually in a kindergarten classroom. And she went in trying to understand, I think like the, the something to do with the standards, but by the end of her study, she concluded that what was actually happening, the most central thing that was happening was a cultural practice of smartness. And by that, she said that she leverages some other theory from Holland um, and colleagues, but this idea that there is a, a social context, right, where people are participants and what those people are doing to each other, basically this practice produces the idea of the hierarchy. So she would say like the main thing these students learned from kindergarten is who was the smartest and the next smartest and who was at the very bottom. And yes, maybe they were doing shapes or arithmetic, but at the end of the day, all the things that were going on, the discourse, the artifacts, the students' identities, what was happening ultimately was that this was a cultural practice. So she says like smartness is a verb. It's a thing that's happening where at the end of the day, it's where do I stand? What is the hierarchy? And that hierarchy was about smart. But that is just, that is so fascinating. And I, I remember when you said that in your seminar, I had to say, wait, wait, Emily, wait, say that again, say that again. I have to let that sink in. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's somebody, something we can all relate to of being in school and sometimes literally having people placed in their desks according to different test results or seeing test results um, and having that really either confirm or shake up your identity if you do if you don't do well and you always should or suddenly you do well and you're how am I doing well um, I think I, I was telling you this story of having a substitute teacher come into my uh, mm. elementary school and the substitute teacher didn't know who the smart kids were and who the not smart kids were according to our beliefs mm -hmm. and was treating some of the not smart kids like smart kids. Mm -hmm. And it, it was kind of like, doesn't she know that Rosemary really isn't one of the smart kids? Yeah. Um, it was, it, it was very startling. So I think this is probably a place to that this, you know, we, we talked in the beginning about how beliefs promote, can promote inequity. Mm -hmm. um, could you say a bit about with regards to smartness, how that happens? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. So Beth Hatt makes the same sort of conclusion in her work. For example, she says that, you know, we all participate in this thing. We're doing smartness. That's what we're actually doing as we do all these other things, as we teach and learn and interact and share, we're, we're doing smartness. And from her study, she concluded that um, the the how the students ended up in the hierarchy was a function of the teacher and the attention she gave. And that attention and those expectations were mediated by their race and their socioeconomic status. So at the end of her observations of this classroom, right, what comes out of the cultural practice is a hierarchy, but it is not an objective hierarchy in any way, right? The black boys are at the bottom of the hierarchy because of the way, even though they behave the same as the other students, the way the teacher paid attention and expected them to, quote, misbehave, that at the end, all the students in the class understood that the Black boys were not as smart as the, I always think of myself, like the little white girl who followed all the rules and sat and was a docile body, right? And that that was what got produced was this shared understanding. Like you said, everybody knew, but that is raced and gendered and connected to every other social identity, right? Disabilities, you know, you can think of anything that would happen in a K-12 classroom, a kid with a stutter, whatever it might be. And that those things directly inform in complex ways um, that the hierarchy. So it is no mistake. It is well established in literature from K-12. We know this very, you know, it's not really a debate at this point that, for instance, Black people, Black children are not placed in gifted programs, right, The in, in the rates that match what they should. And this is all around how this idea of, yeah, we construct it, but we have all of our you know, the other fundamental building blocks of society, like racism, you know, white supremacy, those are a part of that same cultural practice. We bring those in, the history of the space, the history of the people, the power and privilege structures that exist outside the classroom, they're not cut out, right? They are still at play. And so consistently, without a doubt, white students are placed, constructed, at higher in the hierarchy, right? The same thing we understand about, especially in engineering, people talk about gender. Women are presumed incompetent, right? They're presumed versus men presumed competent. So those social identities are, are all up in the way that this plays out. And that's one of, I think, again, there's like very deep connections to, we can't broaden participation. We can't seem to have, you know, be inclusive in engineering. And I just see that connection so strong that in school in general, I think we're all learning where we stand, how smart we are, where we are in the hierarchy, but especially in a place like engineering, where there's this sort of pervasive cultural belief that you must be smart to do that. That's for smart people. And right at the same time, that's a space that remains male and white. Like I see that connection through, right? Like very fundamental ideas um, that enable racism about differences in competence and intellectual ability and those myths that are embedded into those things, I think they map right on to, to what we understand about smartness and, and how those hierarchies are constructed in ways that are very inequitable. So Emily, this is all really just so fascinating and I'm, I'm sure there's a million directions 
you could go with this research. So luckily, um, you know, you'll have a long research career and you'll be able to do a lot of things. But would you be willing to share a bit of what you think you're going to tackle next as far as beliefs? Yeah, I can tell you the thing that I'm really like confused by and excited about right now that we're working on and the project is already underway, but it will continue for a few years. So I have a career project that is focused on, um, and if I just say that, like everyone knows what that means. That's like a specific thing from NSF, a five-year where they give you, um, they support you as a pre-tenure, early career person, they call it career award, mm-hmm. who investigates something that might be risky, but can really lay the groundwork, the foundation for, you know, a springboard for your research career. So that's what I'm referring to. And my project is about engineering faculty, staff, and administrators, and what they believe causes inequity, specifically race or gender-based inequity in engineering. But the pivot that I have made in this project is not just like, what is the content of their beliefs, which is the stuff before, right? Like, well, how are you smart? What does it mean to be smart? What's the content? Oh, they say it's efficiency. Instead, we do ask them to tell us what they believe, what their theory is about the cause of minoritization. But we use some theory and have an interview protocol where we actually try, we're trying to get at like, how do you know that? Like I said, this idea that they evolve very slowly over time, like what are the ways of knowing? How are you convinced? Because people are pretty convinced of their beliefs. And I think, you know, they, they should be, but actually trying to understand how people can articulate this theory that you've sort of developed implicitly. If I ask you to, to name it, like, how did you get there? And we are currently two years in (laughs) and have quite a bit of data and are, it's just really fun and intriguing and confusing to try to untangle that and understand what that means. Oh, well, I will be waiting to see what you find out because, (laughs) uh, yes, we are so convinced of things that, you know, really we're just making up somebody somebody that we trust believes it so we do too Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um yeah not rational at all i think it am i right in saying that some of our remembering that in some of our previous discussions there was like a, a argumentation model you were following and that that is therefore assuming there's like some kind of logical argument that you're making. Are people able to do that when they talk about their beliefs? How, how is that framework working out? Mm, Good question. So yeah, the framework we're using is like, okay, tell me what you think is the cause and how do you know that kind of evidence would you show like, right? Talk me through that. But then what might someone who disagreed with you think is the cause. So this is like the argument structure, right? Like, do you know your position? Do you know someone else's position? And then kind of, can they close the loop? Well, what evidence might they use? And how would you, you know, sort of rebut them? The theory is saying that, you know, if you really are committed to a belief, you would be able to articulate that. And as you might imagine that we find with um, a lot of academics is they can do that, but there's this interesting pattern in like, 
oh, but I can't cite literature. But instead, they're saying, well, let me tell you about what my mother was like in my childhood home. Let me tell you about my roommate when I got to college and what she told me. Um, let, you know what I mean? Like, like, I've seen this thing happening. And so I think what we're seeing is we came at it probably like, yeah, argument as a scholarly argument. But they actually are making arguments, but that's what's starting to come out is even though they won't claim it, like, therefore, I know they'll sort of dismiss it, like the role of these other ways of knowing their lived experience, the empathy they have for people they love, right, the things they learn from their students. And so that's something we're really really intrigued by when it comes to these really complex things, right? You can't just read the literature and know you're filling in the gaps. You have a lifetime of experience in, you know, a society that is raced and organized around race and gender. And so we're still trying to make sense of that, but yes, not in the academic scholarly way, but absolutely, but drawing on all of these different things that are what they have taken in to try to understand. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so interesting. <laughs> so as, as you know, the final question I usually ask guests is um, to give some advice to people who are thinking about researching um, something complex, something foundational, something ambiguous, something like beliefs. <laughs> so what advice would you have for researchers trying to tackle a a big, slippery, intriguing, ever-changing concept like beliefs? Yeah, I think um, probably the advice I still have to give myself is just one of patience. Because, you know, going back to this idea of like, you're going to plant your flag and then you're going to make a unique contribution as a scholar. It was like, okay, let's go. And Yes, you do the things and you write the papers, of course, right? But again, you know, five years is not that long, but I thought it would be really long. And now I'm here like, I don't even know what this thing is. Like that way we used to talk about it two years ago. That's like a little embarrassing if you look at that paper, because now I understand so much more or, oh my goodness, like in the library, you know, there's a lifetime of reading I could do to understand all the different fields and how they've come at it. So I think just sort of leaning in and getting a little more comfortable with this idea that it just takes time. You know, I know when we did the podcast and I interviewed you, you talked about like, well, I had this question. Like in the 70s, this was the question that was really eating at me. But like by the 80s, you know, this, and I remember thinking like, what? Decades on one question? But I'm slowly like, right, as I grow up, as I have some more experience, seeing that of just the patience with especially when something is complex, you can find it in many different ways, right? You can come at it with different angles, with different theory, just sort of leaning into that maybe as like job security instead of as I should have figured this out by now because um, it just takes time and it's just continuous sort of beginner's mind, I think. Mm-hmm. So we can come back and talk to you in, in 10 years and 20 years and you'll see, right? 
Yeah, I still like to think I know what I'm talking about, but I always tell my students because they're like, we're writing these papers and they're like, but what if? And I'm like, well, let me tell you, when, if you read that in five years and you are on board with every single word, then you haven't been doing research. You better have figured it out. You know, you better think more different things about, you know, five years from now, but I'm still having to practice that myself um, to really just lean into how it is an evolution and we're learning and we work with different people with different ideas. It just keeps evolving. Mm-hmm. And it stays ever fascinating. Yeah. And with that, I think that's a good place to end. It's been so delightful and uh, I hope it doesn't take me years and years to tease you back into coming and telling us more thank you Ruth and thank you for your support all of these years you've been an outstanding mentor for the listeners who don't get to talk to you one on one thank you for doing this for our community and for all you've done for me oh well it's, it's a delight truly Research Briefs is produced by the School of Engineering Education at Purdue thank you to Patrick Vogt for composing our theme music A transcript of this podcast can be found by Googling Purdue Engineering Education Podcast. And please check out my blog, ruthstreveler.wordpress.com.